You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Paul Kelly, who is currently the Vice President of Mergers and Acquisitions at Acquired.com. Before Acquired.com, Paul had a 20-plus year career as a business broker here in Silicon Valley, seeing everything you can imagine. On today's show, we talk about how can one build goodwill over a transaction? What are some of the biggest reasons why a company does not sell? What questions do sellers forget or miss to ask buyers in a transaction? Where do sellers struggle the most when getting companies ready to sell? And much more. This is an amazing episode. I'm sure you're going to listen to multiple times. So, well, let's get started. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Paul, I'm super excited to have you on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, for our audience, I've known Paul, he's probably of all the guests I've had on the show, I've known Paul the longest. So hopefully we'll go on some great stories. But Paul, I mean, I know about your career, I know about yourself, but can you tell our audience a little bit about your history, a little bit about your career up until this point? Absolutely. And thanks for having me, Sean. I've been watching your, it's, what episode is this? Like 100 and It'll be like 175, yeah, something go, like man. that. That's yeah. uh, kudos. So as far as my career, it's not the uh, typical path one would take to where, where I sit today. You know, I, I grew up in mostly in Southern California. And after a very short stint in uh, playing football in college, realized I wasn't going to be a football player. And then I was, what am I going to be when I grow up? I, I wasn't really sure. My sister had moved to Northern California, so I came to visit and I ended up moving up here. The cliff notes after that was I ended up meeting a guy who was doing this lifelong journey, this planned trip up to Alaska. His father had a friend that worked in a, a cannery or ran a cannery out of Seward, Alaska. And uh, he was going to drive up, camp all the way up, uh, drive up through Canada and all the way up to this place in Seward. And the goal was if you work really well, when the boat guys need deckhands or what have you, they would come to the cannery and get the best workers. So I ended up piggybacking with him on that trip. We took two weeks and drove all the way up. And I would recommend that to anybody. It's awesome. I mean, you get up through Northern Canada, up through the Yukon Territory, and it's just vast and it just goes on forever. It's just so beautiful. Along the trip, there was a place called the Liard River, which had hot springs. And uh, we stopped there met an old, old, old timer who uh, was coming down from Alaska and we were sitting around a campfire, just, just, you know, talking stories. And, and he heard what we were doing and he said, Hey, if you ever get to, uh, you actually make it up to Seward, go find Rosie at the fishing company of Alaska. You know, she'll tell her I sent you, she'll take care of. Um, so we finished the night, finished our drive, got up to Anchorage. We did, as we were told by the guy, call him when you get to Anchorage and they'll tell us what to do from there. He'd been running that cannery for over 20 years. He got fired in the two weeks that we were driving up. <laughs> you got two guys uh, in Anchorage with a Toyota truck with windsurfers on it because we did surf in the, the windsurf in the Gulf of Alaska, just to say we did it. And we were like, now what? Because I think we had like $220 to our name. <laughs> so we went like any you know logical person we would do. We went to a bar to figure it out. And um, actually, before that, we went to a youth hostel and the thing was stacked to the rims with people looking for work. And we we're like, uh oh. <laughs> so then we were sitting in this bar, just literally like, what are we going to do? And pulled out a map back in the day when you actually had a folded up map and uh, 
And we were just, okay, we have to, you know, we're doing the math. Okay, we have $220. We can get this much gas. We can go, this is our, this is our radius. You know, what are we going to do? And uh, anyway, we, we drove to uh, Seward and found the fishing company of Alaska because I had remembered sitting at that bar. What was the name of that lady that old guy told us? <laughs> and uh, so we drove to Seward and this town was... Um, I don't know if if you've ever seen the show Northern Exposure, old show in, in Alaska, but it was like you know dirt road town with uh, you know one big building which was the general store, the hospital, the post office, and the hotel, and then uh, that's very much like this this town was at the time. And found the fishing company of Alaska, walked in, and it was like any other office. Uh, it was very trippy because you're up there in very rugged Alaska, and then you walk in, and it was like walking into a dentist office in Concord. <laughs> it was very trippy. And uh, walked in and I said, it was a receptionist with the desk. And I said, hi, we're here to see Rosie. And she said, oh, you must be Mark and John. And I grabbed my buddy's hand. Yeah, yeah, we are. <laughs> so she came out and got us a few minutes later. We went and talked about the job on the boat. And uh, literally, we're getting ready to f- fill out waivers and forms when I said, and she was a, a tough lady. Let's just say that. I wouldn't want to get in a brawl with her. And, she, and I told her what, you know, I said, I got to come clean, you know. I'm Paul and this is Don, you know, and, and she just buckled over laughing, slapping her. Oh my God. And so she said, those losers didn't show up. The job is yours. So like four hours later, we're on a boat and, and I ended up doing that for three long summers um, after that. So I was doing the Alaska thing. I wasn't intending to do it more than one year, but I made a bunch of loot, went down to Mexico. I, I had a place outside of, uh, or I, a place that I stayed in outside of Cabo, about seven miles. And basically played volleyball and surfed and, and had fun every day for the rest of the year. They came, they found me and called me and enticed me back up there with more money and, and, and stuff. And so I went back up and again, they did it for a third time. And uh, after the third time I was down in, in Mexico and I was like, I got to get a life. This is great, but I got to get a life. So I literally planted myself in the middle of San Francisco, not knowing anybody, bought myself a motorcycle. That's what I drove and uh, got an apartment and just started driving around looking for stuff to do. And at the time, the only work besides fishing was uh, restaurants. And so I, I happened upon this place in the marina here in San Francisco, and they were in the middle of a build out and uh, kind of talked my way into the gig and ended up doing restaurant stuff here for my first 10 years from there, which was great. I mean, it was, it was uh, a great way to get connected. It just happened to be uh, a, um, the most popular place in San Francisco for a good seven, eight year run. And after that, a friend was starting a, an outdoor media company just kind of by happen chance. And I ended up doing that with him. And we scaled that company over the course of four or five years to, uh, I think there was about 47 locations uh, throughout the city. It was like, it was an outdoor media company, meaning you put like stickers on the sides of big buildings. And, um, and that company was acquired. And that was kind of my first vision into that, that world. And uh, after that, I was kind of figuring out what to do next. and. Um, I ended up uh, at BTI, uh, Matt or business team. Matt Cohen was a great guy, and he was help- I was helping him do some stuff there, and got to see what these guys did from the inside out, and it just seemed super interesting to me. You get to see how people create wealth, see how people are successful in business. You know, checked a lot of the boxes with, you know, you get to learn new stuff, you get to help people, be of service, somewhat immediate gratification if you're lucky. <laughs> well, you still haven't said what BTI does. It was a Main Street brokerage. And so it was owner operator, you know, everything from the mechanic shop to the corner deli to, you know, the lower middle market transactions. So it was, it was, uh, it was definitely where I cut my teeth and I met some good people there. 
one one fellow right across the, the table from me here. <laughs> I don't even know how long ago that was. 2014, maybe. Wow, that's gone back a spell. Yeah, so I ended up there, um, enjoying it enough to stay for I don't know, almost ten years, and ended up managing the office and t- took it over. And and you know, natural maturation. You want to l- work on larger and larger deals. And you know, the reality is is that the the broker has a bad connotation to it, unfortunately. And so we were feeling somewhat inhibited by that association. So um, myself and and a partner started a lower middle market firm focusing on truly the lower middle market, like five to $25 million type transactions. And these were size of business that we felt were you know, underserved by typical PEs or investment banks because it just flies under the radar, right? It's particularly at that time. I think nowadays people are going downstream a bit more. And then it was, you know, for the Main Street guys, it was a, you know, some of them could do it as far as the process. They had the knowledge to do the transaction, but they didn't have the network because you really need the buyer network in order to be successful there. So we hit the ground running in it, and it was it was quite successful from day one because it was a as I've learned now the keyword product market fit. We we found a product market fit, and uh, that that was a good run. After that, I got coerced into uh, I was doing some consulting for a fitness franchise. Or was a, a relatively new startup, and a, a good friend of mine was an early investor, and he asked if I could help out the uh, CEO with some stuff on the West Coast, and so I was introduced to this fascinating guy who who literally started like the fitness. I mean, he's what the fitness industry is today. He started back in the 70s, back in New York. And it was just an old like intellectual hippie guy, but you know, at, at heart. And so he's a super interesting guy. Consulted with him for a few months at the end of 2019, 2019 being the key <laughs> timeline there. And it was, it was October uh, 2019. And he he, uh, you know, we enjoyed working with each other. And he said, why don't you know, entice me to come on board? And I, and I did to help him scale, raise some capital, scale. And it was like a two, three-year plan. Three weeks later, COVID. <laughs> you know, so fitness and COVID, I quickly learned, don't play well together. And so uh, the job changed from scaling and, and raising capital to, to triage and saving the company. And, and uh, as I joke, you know, after, after I quit hitting, you know, once the blood dried from me smashing my face against the wall saying, what did I just do? I realized that I was in a in a position to be of service to these, you know, there was 35 locations open, 33 of which these franchisees had no business running a franchise. They were great fitness people, but they got, you know, they were sold the franchise. Literally, it was a great salesman. And it was unfortunate because they were already on, you know, thin ice. And then you throw forced closure, landlords still wanting to get paid. And it was a it was not a good scene. So that in addition to we were across, gosh, how many different, seven, eight different states. So different states, you know, you had your federal regulations, you had your state regulations, county, city. It was a thing to figure out for sure. But we did and only had to close a couple of locations. So I, I stuck it out for 13 months. And, uh, and then we, we parted ways <laughs> because it wasn't what I signed up for. Um, but, you know, we stabilized the organization and, and I wish them well to this day. I was fried because we grinded hard on that, um, you know, to, to do that job. And I was just going to take six months off and uh, had some work to do on the house. I have three young kids, spend time with the family and just figure out the next thing. And I had my eye on an RV. I wanted to, <laughs> my wife laughs at me. That's my guilty pleasure. RVs are so awesome, uh, but I don't have one yet. I'm going to be like uh, John Madden when I'm 70, you know, just driving around and tricked out. So anyway, I, I was going to take, you know, a big chunk of time off and, and kind of recalibrate. And I got about two, three weeks into that, that break. And I was looking for a receipt in my like old Hotmail account uh, from something. It's like I had the Hotmail account because grandma, that's what she used. You know, she's 
past, but you know, I, I just always held it on. That's like the, the, the dummy account, the burner. And so I went into this hotmail and there was this, you know, the emails that we all get, Hey, come work for me. Come, Hey, check this out. I never look at them. I never open them. Um, but for some reason this time I did, I clicked on it and it was just enticing enough. I was, huh. And I responded to it and back and forth started. I never, I hadn't done a resume for 20 years, 15, 20 years. You know, I put a resume together. It forced me to do that. And that was micro acquire. That was a Andrew, his wife actually has an agency. So, and that's how it all happened. I was the, I guess the first outside hire. Cause he, you know, the others all worked with him in the previous endeavor. So, and then I'm, I'm at micro acquire now and, or I'm sorry, acquire we've dropped the micro. So it's been a wild, uh, almost coming up on two years now. Okay. So tell me what acquired acquired.com does. Tell me what your role at the company is. And then I'm really also curious, and I'm sure our listeners are as well, is a high-flying tech company. You were on a fishing boat. <laughs> How does one go to the other? Especially, you know, I'm guessing everyone at, at the company maybe could be your kid. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you, sir? Um, but that's, yeah, not every, well, actually, yeah. I think if I started real young, I guess 15, I could have had a kid. So I think the 15 years is the delta there. But who would have thought that... Uh, I would be the voice of reason. <laughs> it's definitely, um, I've never been that guy. But so, uh, you know, when I, Andrew Gazdecki founded this after his third company was acquired and it was a sizable exit, he was 29 years old. And uh, that was not even four years ago. It was a company called Business Apps that he scaled and, and uh, had a very good exit. And, um, you know, going through those endeavors, he's, he realized that, you know, true startup founders, and, and mind you, he was already a social, brand, you know, he, he was very active on, you know, social media and Twitter and had a following and, and uh, was the, an advocate for founders. So he initially started this as a way for startup founders that otherwise wouldn't know where to start to get introduced to buyers. And founders list for free, buyers list for free. And uh, I've joked that it was like, when I came on, it was like, like a dating app, you know, it's like there was no data really being collected. It was swipe, swipe left, swipe right, go about your day. And I think there was maybe five, 600 listings at the time weren't probably, I think there was a lot of rainbows in there and unicorn chasers and stuff like that. But um, nonetheless, there was real traction and, and certainly a need. I mean, people were desperate for information and education. So, you know, when I came on initially, it was, how, what do we do from here? So uh, the first step was to build out a, an advisory directory to educate, you know, the community and really empower the, the ecosystem to, you know, help themselves in, in, on, through that journey. I was looking the other day, I think I've had since then over, well, so we did the advisory directory. Probably took the first four months of my existence there. After I, we launched that, and it was it was that October, so I guess a year ago October, and there was forty five various advisors, what, CPAs to deal folks to M and A guys, attorneys, escrows, valuation, anybody that a founder may need through their journey to to call on and be able to help, or they can get full help all the way from the beginning if they, if they needed it. So after we launched that, realized I was like, gosh, now we have. 2000 listings, our onboarding got tight, our, you know, the buyer onboarding got tight, the founders, you know, the seller onboarding got tight, meaning higher quality, better, more restrictions. So I went to, you know, I went to work trying to find out what these people knew and didn't know and how we can best serve them. And, you know, when I was at the previous firm or, or my firm or the, the one before, I was always very owner centric, seller centric. So I sit down with them, really understand why you're here, why, why, why are you selling? I really think that often they don't even know why the real reason is they're selling. So really understanding that 
right out the gate is paramount to to your success because everything plots from there anyway. So uh, with the ecosystem at uh, Acquire, I just you know when listings were coming through our onboarding process and there were certain precipices of, of gross sales or annual recurring revenue, they would get kicked over to me to have a conversation and I would you know help them see what they really needed help with and then help them and whether that was you know educating them on various deal you know transactional stuff how to prepare themselves i mean it ended up being a open source paint by numbers right and that was that was also often challenging for for founders to get their heads wrapped around that you need to do some work before you go to market if you want to you know to increase your probability of close and you know you think about a founder that's been at it for 7 8 years which is a long time in this world right and they've just you know, blinders on just doing the doing the list in front of them so when they start talking to a buyer about some churn or KPI this or line 56 on the P&L and they don't have that information readily available and they're looking like a deer in the headlights, right or wrong, they've just devalued their business because it, it, it's a perception of a lack of organization that reflects on the, on the operation. So we would, you know, really enforce how important it was to prepare. And so we would show folks how to, or found, show founders how to uh, organize their financials, uh, recast a financial statement. We gave them a, a template for a, a, memora- a SIM, you know, a memorandum to really detail their business. We would give them a checklist to do diligence on their self, create a data room. And you would see them cringing in their seat and who and an all. And I'm just like, look, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, but if you do the lifting now, it will pay dividends down the road. And because you're not only getting the business prepared and, and doing housekeeping, really, but you're getting your head game ready, right? You got to get your head in the game and, and ready for those kind of questions. And so I like to use the analogy that a friend of mine, Mike Trevino, told me, or actually it's, it's from his, his advice from when I was training for a marathon when I turned 50 five years ago. I said it, okay? Uh, <laughs> I turned 55, what, on the 16th of January, so a couple of weeks ago. I don't feel a day over 50, I swear to God. Yeah, neither does Siri, I guess. Yeah, she was, she's jealous. Um, <laughs> But my friend, Mike Trevino, who's a, just an awesome person in general, but also a, an uber athlete and uh, has done some inhuman runs and, you know, ultra craziness. But he was my trainer, basically, my remote trainer to ask questions about this, that and the other. And so his sage advice was stick to this plan, put in the, put in the work, put in the road work. You know, so it was like I had whatever months ahead and trained this way and just put in the work and keep to that cadence and come race day, it'll be a breeze. And I use that analogy here. It's like, you know what? Do the work now. And when you come race day, which is ready to get into a deal, it should be a breeze. All right. And with that, though, question for you. These companies that that you're helping to get acquired, the size of deals that you're working on, kind of what are all the steps in that process? Maybe you don't need to go too granular, but kind of an overview for our audience of what this, this takes. Yeah, am I speaking to a founder that's thinking about preparing for a sale? Yeah, sub five million. It's well, first, really having a you know self reflection. Why why are you thinking about that? What is your motivation? First, certainly getting your financials in order, which is you know proper P and Ls and balance sheet, putting a presentation together, a slide deck, whatever is for you know because it's maybe not on acquire that they do it. You know, it's elsewhere. Just having a presentation of your operation and then being able to defend whatever you're presenting. Because the reality is there's no hiding. And if you try to embellish something as it relates to the business, 
it's going to come out and it's going to, it's going to hurt, you know, and it's going to be down the road and you've already invested a lot of time as has the party that's in diligence and uh, you're not making any friends when they find that out. Right. And the old adage is what kills deals, you know, time and surprises. And so we don't want surprises. And so really preparing yourself for that. And that's being realistic about the market. And if you want to go for a high end, you know, multiple, uh, great, but, you know, be, be aware that, you know, are real market conditions and there's not many fools out there. And then, I mean, as far as, do you want to continue on through like a packaging process? Like I said, I mean, it's just preparing yourself, due diligence on yourself. One thing that comes up often, and this is probably a good thing for your particularly technology companies. There's, you know, I talked to a lot of founders and I looked the other day, it's over 1500 of those founder calls since I started having. (laughs) So it's, it's, uh, been a lot of those conversations. That's why my voice is harsh, uh, a horse today. But I talked to a lot of them that are a year, two years in, and they're looking to, to sell. And they've, they've found a pro- product market fit. They're earning real money, maybe a million bucks, two million bucks in, to their gross. A sellable company, but they're already working on the new shiny thing, right? However, you learn that they've elected for a C-Corp structure because they were thinking it was going to be you know, a $100 million company by next year. And so that's the best vehicle for taking on investors and issuing shares. Well, they didn't play the tape forward in, into a sale. And especially when it's a smaller transaction on a C-Corp, there's a double taxation issue that's quite painful. So it almost demands a stock sale, which a lot of people don't want to take on that risk for a small transaction in a stock sale. So the, for the listeners that aren't fully aware, so C-Corp, when you sell and as a founder, you're, after you sell, you want to take the money out of that corporation. Well, you, the corporation gets a capital gain hit, and then you have to do a distribution to your shareholders, you being one of them, and then you have an ordinary income hit. So as I've said to founders, you could be very patriotic and just go that route in an asset sale because that's what it's going to end up being. But there's some decisions that, that need to be made there. So yeah, so it's just, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things to to learn about. Luckily, we've identified a lot of that, a lot of those conversations. We've had a lot of customer service, which has just logging all of the inquiries and questions. And we're building content around that. We have a we have a full-on creation team, a content team that writes tons of articles. I believe you've been a contributor to at least one or two. Um, I think we're at five now. You're at five now. We we gotta put you on the put you on the uh, masthead. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a very. I mean, I my wife and her friend are thinking about starting a e-commerce dropship type of business, and she was asking me questions, and I said, "Go there, and you can find out everything you need to know." <laughs> And then if you can't, then come back and ask me questions. Find them a company to acquire on pennies on the dollar too. That's, we see a lot of that. You know, it's, that's what's been so interesting. I think you were leading into the old guy into the tech world and uh, coming off of a fishing boat. <laughs> but what's been the most, what's been the most interesting, I think out of anything is just the, the, the pure scale and, and the rapidness of scale. Um, and the just the hunger of these founders. I mean, they're just they're just hustlers. It's so it's so fun to see. And I learned a long time ago the people that I mean, everyone has ideas, but the people that are successful are they do something about that. And they might have that idea and go try it and fail miserably, but they're gonna do the next one and do the next one and they're gonna hit. And it's the it's the action. And these people are they they're movers, you know. So it's been super fun to see that, but also just the 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 growth of our marketplace, uh, you know, going from those, I mean, it's only not even two years and where we started with a few hundred and now there's closing in on 3000 listings, tight listings, good listings, sellable listings. And 
you know, the buyer pool on our general platform is over 135,000 people. We have our platinum buyers, our VIP buyers. So it's, it's just a very robust marketplace and it's super exciting to see. And it's really about learning from them and then, you know, sharing that knowledge, institutional knowledge through content or webinars or what have you with, with the ecosystem. And, you know, we're seeing $25,000 API drops that are, that's being paid. We have a Slack channel that has, it's like a, it's like a NASDAQ ticker for me. <laughs> when I get a little tired, I'll just look at it and it deals closed. Boom. All day long. I just see it. And it's 5,000, 10,000, 9 million <laughs> on platform without our help or anything. And it's, it's super exciting to see. And watching our average AR go up as far as the combined, you know, AR of the listings we're working with. So we have our general marketplace listings where people can go and list, go about it on their own. And then we have other products that are guided, which is a little lighter service where you have a, a safety net of assistance and all the content and help you need as well as software. Are, I mean, these guys are amazing. It's just shout out to Steve and Dave. It's just, they're, they're just building awesome, awesome things. And it's amazing to see because I don't really know. It's like they're like magicians as far as I'm concerned. I just see it. It's like, what? So there's tools on platform to, to run a deal on your own, but the, with the safety net of knowing someone's there to save you if you start falling. So, and then our higher value listings go through our, our managed by acquire, which is where I'm playing most of my days. So in these transactions, what's your favorite part of them to discuss or information that our listeners should be aware of in these transactions. So during the transactions pre-sale, right? Yeah, basically talk to us about goodwill. Is that a lead-in question? <laughs> yeah, so that was a softball that just went, okay, here, I'll just put well, it on the T in front of you. It, it's, you know, I have that conversation with buyers, with sellers, with everyone that is involved. I'm a, a big believer in the importance of goodwill. And it's an intangible that you can't get a KPI on. Um, but I think it's just as important as your financial performance, as your market fit, as the TAM. It, I mean, it, it's it's critical, and you know, I that's why the the system we've divide you know, set up here is, and it's the same one I had elsewhere. You know, very early on, I went the buyer and seller together. I mean, we've done our job teeing up the buyer or the seller. We've packaged them, we've prepared them, so that part's taken care of. The buyer will make sure that we're not wasting anybody's time there that they're qualified to have that call. But once, we, once we're there, that first call, I don't want to talk about the operations and the P&L and the KPIs. I don't, want, I don't want them talking about that. I want them talking to each other and getting to know each other and building that on that goodwill. And it is invaluable because I've been around for a while and I've never seen a deal that's went start to finish without some hurdles and bumps along the road. It's, it's uh, critical in so much that I once we're in a transaction, I kind of require that once a week, all the stakeholders get on a call. I don't care when we do it, but once a week, we're going to meet and we're going to go over, just say hi. I don't care if we're talking about the Niners over the weekend, but we're going to check in, say hi, go over the transaction schedule, who's done what, what's left to do. And it just keeps that continuity of goodwill. Years ago, back in other places, what I had seen was you have a few cheers along the way. You're, you're an agent, you get a listing, yay. You package them up, you go to market. And that's a bit of a celebration you launch, right? You I was hoping for the sound effect, sound yeah. effect again. Yeah. Yay. Um, you, you could do that in post, right? Drop some, drop some yays drop in some there, yes. claps. Um, and then you, you, know, you meet buyers, you meet the right buyer, you get into a deal, celebration, celebration. And then you get into diligence. And everyone goes to their corners and they don't talk for 60 days, you know, and t unless there's a problem. And then all of that goodwill that was built up starts crumbling. And so 
keeping the continuity of that goodwill, you know, throughout the transaction is super important. And it's been, I mean, I could stand by that, you know, 100%. But, you know, you ask the question about what's the most, you know, the goodwill portion is, is certainly fun. I, I just, I'm, I, I mean, I'm like in the catbird seat in a sense, right? I mean, I get to talk to founders all day long, every day. And just some fascinating, just some really amazing things these guys are doing. So men and women, it's just, it's wild. And it's also global. We're talking to people all over the world and the digital nomads that are like calling from wherever they had their laptop that day. It's just so amazing what, what technology has been able to afford people. It's just amazing. That goodwill that's built up over the transaction. When the, when everything's signed, goodwill die there. Does it matter? Does the goodwill, is it important for post-transaction? Well, it's, I would hope that the parties get along because even if it's a very short transition, you're still working with somebody. You're, you're effectively in a partnership for a period of time and it might be longer than shorter. So yes, the goodwill is important. And, and it's, it's also, if you have a good relationship there and you, and you've built that up, I mean, gosh, if, if I sold you a business and then six months later, there's the training's over, that's done, everything's done, but you got in the weeds and there's something emergent, you should be able to call me and I should be able to give you an answer. I mean, that's part of it, right? And yeah, I mean, it's, it's critical. I don't know if there's any way you could put a dollar value on it, but it's up there with the other big ones. What questions do you hear often, either buyers asking sellers or sellers asking buyers? Sellers don't ask buyers nearly enough questions. And it scares me sometimes because I, when we're there, we take care of that and we moderate any of that because we're on every call, at least the ones I'm, I'm involved with. I but, guess what questions should they be asking? Then? Well, they should be asking, you know, sellers. And I, I, I actually wrote a content, uh, an article on this as well. You know, diligence is a two-way street and diligence starts for you. The first conversation you have, it doesn't, you don't have to wait to due diligence period once you've, you're in an agreement. So founders, you're talking to a buyer, ask them, are you funded? Do you have a dedicated fund? Do you plan on getting institutional financing? You know, how are you going to fund this thing? And that should be a very early question. I talk to founders every single week that were in a deal before they came to us that, you know, they got drugged through the mud with an unfunded fund. Um, so it's a private equity group. They're great. I'm sure they're great people, but they go and they package the thing up and then they go shopping. They have investors that they rely on, but it's at the investor's whim, right? So it's These, painful. The search funds out there. It's uh, I, I get emails all the time of, I'm looking for this company, you know, this, 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 and I'll, I'll find the person on their LinkedIn. It's just one guy that just graduated, maybe Harvard Business School or graduated some MBA program, not connected to a fund or just says, I have all these, this access to capital. And it's crazy because five minutes of due diligence, you're like, this guy's all fluff. He's just going to get an LOI sign and then go out to his alumni network and try to raise the capital there. But it's odd how many times I'll talk to someone and they'll do zero due diligence on who, who is making the offer to buy them. I'm going to turn the table. Why do you think that is? Because they see the offer and it's higher than everyone else and they get excited and they, want yeah. to believe it. Rose colored glasses, man. They're, they just want, they're, they're creating a reality that's, that's fictitious. <laughs> you know? I was and, on one call not too long ago where this guy, He's like, he was introduced to me by, by a contact. He's like, Sean, just talk to my friend. He just got an offer for like 9.4 million for his company. That was just eyeballing it. You're like, dude, that's 2X anything possible for this thing easily. And he's like, yeah, you know, I got this offer. It was an unsolicited offer. I got this email. We had a call. It was great. 
and I don't need an investment banker. I don't need any help, you know, but if this doesn't go through, maybe we'll go out again, but you know, this is going to be great. And, and I was like, what's the name of this group? And he's like, I can't tell you not in a day. I'm like, okay, no, no problem. I was like, like, but you've done research on this. Cause you know, the offer you're telling me it's pretty high. Don't you think he's like, well, there's no way of finding out if, if this guy actually, ha- or if this private equity group has the money or not. I'm like, there's a <laughs> ton of ways to find out. What are you talking about? Just ask like, it's 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 unfortunate and it's people want to believe what they want to believe and you know there's another net effect of of something like the scenario you just laid out is that when that person comes to reality you know and and realizes that that buyer group doesn't have funds so they go elsewhere they're still stuck on that that number is nailed into their brain and it's very hard for them to come off of that so i've you know i've had to get creative with various ways of of handling that and you know one way is okay fine we'll go to market at that price but you have to agree to me now that if we don't get x amount of nda sign and this that and the other by 30 days from now you're going to come down to some number where i can sell it otherwise we can't can't help you you know i mean people what's the adage you know i'm going to tell you what you need to hear not what you want to hear here's a question for you with the people coming to you with this you know big number in the sky how often do people approach you and they go, my friend or someone I know, or I saw this online, their company sold at this and my company is so much better for these reasons. And they don't factor in when that happened. They don't factor in any of the terms or conditions. They don't factor, they don't even know any of the details of the transaction. It was cash rollover or, or there's like, this person sold their company for this much money. I think mine's better. So I want this much above that and I won't accept anything less. I wish you well. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you're, you hit it. I mean, it, it, you don't know anything about that. You don't know if there was some proprietary IT, some awesome, you know, tech that's built around there that they developed. Maybe there's awesome contracts that are super sticky that this acquirer has been wanting to get, you know, maybe that's right. Or yeah, maybe it's 90% contingent over five years or something that's unrealistic, but there's, they're hitting the head headline. So yeah, it's, I mean, people like that, you could tell them, I mean, it's, I don't get offended. It's a reality. It happens. But all we could do is, you know, tell them the reality and give them our best pitch as to what is, is real and what's not. Luckily with our, the way that we've managed by acquire that we, through our advisory, you know, I always want to align with the founder first, as far as the value range. And I say, you know, I think it's going to be between this and this. Does that, you know, if, if that straddles your expectations, then we'll go to market. We go to market on price by design because I want our VIPs and I want our high-end buyers to go out with the market to speak to us. And that also satisfies the founder that we're, that they're not leaving any money on the table. And, you know, the way our process works, it's kind of a three-tier process. VIPs get it first and then follow to the, uh, we have a, another tier of buyers closing on 800 and called platinum buyers. Uh, those two tiers get it first and we'll learn a lot from them. If anybody gets a SIM, you know, they sign an NDA, they get the SIM. If they pass, that's fine. But why'd you, you know, can you give me some information there? So then if we do have to go targeted marketing, or if we have to go to the general marketplace, which is quite noisy, we're better informed and and we have a better sense of the realities of the marketplace. Where in the preparation to sell a company do founders have the most problems? Uh, I think it's, I mean, it's really, that is as it relates to that founder or that founder or that founder, right? But if you were to say uh, like the recurring general where they have the most problems, I think that they think it's a it's just a heavy process, which it is. And we're taking out, I mean, gosh, we're taking out so much weight as to the the arduous process from a typical investment bank or MA process. 
we're expediting that using tools and technology and software. However, it's still, it's a distraction and it's a stressor. So I think that that is one thing, you know, when you're getting your business ready, you also have to look at your calendar. I mean, make yourself available and you have to realize that it's not a few conversations and you're going to get a suitcase full of money. I mean, it's, it's a process and it's a, it's, it's a long process. And if you don't ask those questions up front, you might have to do that process again because you're going to get halfway through and it's going to flop out. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think that's the biggest thing is people start to, I mean, who don't know what a process is when they hear about it. It's like, oh, that's longer than I thought, you know? With that, I mean, you mentioned price. Is that the main reason or what, what's the main reason or maybe we'll, we'll take price off the table? What would you say is the number one reason why a company doesn't sell? Well, financials. I mean, the first thing is financials, right? If your financials are going the wrong direction or if it's discovered that you've done some things that preparing for a sale, you're getting crafty and maybe I'm not spending that amount on marketing these last, this last quarter to kind of artificially increase your EBITDA or SD sudden, suddenly discovered earnings, right? <laughs> it's uh, if, if there's any going back to a comment I made earlier about just being, I mean, it's, it's all going to come out. There's no, re- you have to be genuine. You have to be truthful. If you're not and you get caught, it's done. It's over. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I think that the, the, the deal will fall out in the financials or if there's poor financial reporting and then the next is if the tech isn't up to date and, and secure. And then if there's, you know, we try to identify very early on, like what the churn is, what the retention is, if there's recurring, because that changes quite a bit. So we've even, we're even implementing now where right up front and center, all the warts are going to be right there in bullet points. So then, I mean, it's just our, our marketplace is so busy now that, I mean, what a good problem to have. Yeah. But I mean, we just launched one uh, two weeks ago and it was like 85 NDAs in. And it's just, it's a lot to sift through and manage. But if you have all of that, that stuff up in front as far as the churn and the, uh, you know, it's actually only 60% SaaS and 40% something else. Um, having that up front and center will help just narrow down to the right person. And that's really inevitably what we're doing. We're trying to get the highest probability of helping that founder get sold in a timely fashion. We don't want to have to do that a bunch of times, right? Before wrapping up, your company acquired, it focuses on a SaaS company. What is happening right now in that sector, in the industry? What trends are we seeing? Well, we actually, it's not just purely SaaS. We do agencies and marketplace, e-commerce, cryptos. I mean, it's all there. So anything technology. Um, as far as my work, uh, it's, it's pure SaaS. And what am I seeing there? As far as in whole, I mean, I, I'm not seeing, you know, with the, with the market corrections and all of the dust up, it's, there's still a lot of activity. So I think, I mean, what am I seeing in a whole that there's a huge, there's massive opportunity in this space. It's not stopping tech. I mean, it's, it's amazing. There's an incredible amount of dry powder still sitting out there. So it's, it's a good spot to be in. And if, I mean, if founders looking to sell, I mean, now's not a bad time. I mean, people might be otherwise disillusioned, but you know, it's, 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 we're active. I mean, there's on platform alone, it's like 50 million a month in transactions. It's, uh, it's happening. So um, I'm seeing a lot of side hustles, you know, like maybe some people that haven't thought about it before they're picking up, they're picking up little, little side projects, side hustles. So it, it's, it's ripe. I mean, it's a, it's a good environment. Fantastic. And Paul, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're doing, the company you're at, what's the best way to go about doing it? Just go to our website, acquire.com and we're all there and my contacts there. I'm on LinkedIn and 
Twitter. I can't claim that I even know my Twitter handle, but uh, I'm there. So come find me. If Paul remembers it before the interview goes live, we'll have it in the show notes. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's awesome to see what you've been doing here as well. So I'll, I'll be here for 275. How about that? Wait, what? 275 episode. All right. 275. We'll get you back then. 100 episodes from now, people. Everyone hear that? Paul has promised, even though he's going to be a big shot by then, probably on a boat someplace in, in the Caribbean, he's going to fly back here for the 200. Let me tell you one little funny on the, on the way out here. That boat that I was on, and everyone can look it up, it was called the uh, Alaska Ranger. And it was, I mean, years after I'd been off the boat, but, and it was a tin can when I was on there. <laughs> So this boat, 185-foot factory trawler, and we'd be all out through the Aleutian Islands and the Bering Sea and Gulf of Alaska. But it was a durable boat. It was like a bobber. I mean, we've been in some crazy seas. The thing finally sunk about eight years ago. And it was the largest, it was the largest Coast Guard rescue in history. And I mean, just amazing. You guys should Google it because it's just amazing to see. And I mean, the Coast Guard people are awesome. So yeah, my boat that I was on is at the bottom of the ocean. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. Check this out. <laughs> Hopefully you didn't know everyone you knew saved. It's unfortunately the, the, the captain and first mate and engineer that was on with me perished with the boat, but they pulled out, uh, it was a large, I mean, they pulled out like 35 guys out of the water and it's hairball water up there. So it's, it's, it was, I mean, amazing that they did what they did. Um, I think it was like an eight hour rescue over like three miles or something in the Bering Sea. <laughs> With 40 foot seas. That's Jeez. Coast Guard. High five. All right. I'm going to look that up. If we find it, we'll put it in the show notes as well. Okay. So, for our audience out there, go to the Silicon Valley Podcast.com. Once again, it's the Silicon Valley Podcast.com. Connect with me there. Connect with me on LinkedIn at Sean Flynn. Um, find out what I'm up to these days. And with that, Paul, I want to thank you one more time for being our guest on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Right on. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.